Well, here we are. Uh, welcome. We are here. It is uh, a snowy night in Bowling Green, but wherever you're watching, uh, we're thrilled that you've chosen to join us. We got uh, a solid group of people that have braved the elements to be here in person, and we know that there are going to be a whole lot of people. We already see you in the chat that are waiting online, so thank you for being a part of this. Uh, this night is Practical Strategies for Managing Anxiety. And uh, Dr. Carissa Watt is a member here at Covenant Church, a clinical psychologist, the co-founder, co-owner of the Anxiety Treatment Center of Greater Toledo up in Perrysburg. There is no better person uh, to walk us through what it might look like to better manage our anxiety because life brings with it uncertainty. Life brings with it all kinds of um, anxiety-inducing problems. 
And so it isn't possible to live absent anxiety necessarily. What we're attempting to do tonight, what she's going to walk us through, is how do we better manage it to find that flourishing that God intended for us? So in order to do that, uh, I want to tell you how this works and give you a little bit of the, uh, I suppose, the logistics of how we're making tonight work. So I'm going to invite Veronica up to come stand with me. If you're watching online, you are chatting, and Veronica is your chat host, and she's here. And so what we want her to do is we want, we want you to see her face, well, her masked face, but you can, you know. Um, when you put a question through during the Q&A following uh, Carissa's talk, when you put a question through, she will be transcribing those and running those over. And so we'll be able to uh, give those questions out as if you were in the room. And so she's doing all of the work of both hosting you online and grabbing your questions and bringing them through. So thanks, Veronica. Everything good in the, blue, in the booth, Brandon? Good enough. Okay. So making sure everybody's good with that. So uh, in the room here, you have papers and pens. If you didn't get one, they are back by the doors. Same question or same uh, role for you. As questions come to you anytime throughout this talk, so if it's in the middle and Carissa says something four minutes in and you go, oh gosh, I have to ask about this because it's okay first to always go, I have a friend or I'm asking for a friend and you can start anything that way, no judgment. And uh, you in the room can walk your question over to Veronica physically. And so we'll just have a space. You just drop it right there, and then she'll make sure that those get up, and we'll get those asked during the Q&A portion as well. If you have no questions and you want to sit back, relax, and enjoy, that is great. Final thing that you need to know is uh, as soon as this is over, it will be placed into uh, the sermon flow. So if you subscribe to our sermon podcast, it'll come up as a sermon podcast. It's like a bonus episode. It'll also go in the Wilderness Sermon Podcast flow on our website, so you can watch it, share it, all those things, and uh, we will be linking to it on Facebook throughout the week, so you have an, an opportunity to share the content with those in your life who you think might be blessed by it. So, all of that said, without further ado, uh, will you please join me in welcoming up Dr. Chris Watt. Well, hello, everybody. Thank you so much for braving the weather to be here and for braving your couch to watch from at home. Sounds amazing. Um, but yes, thank you so much for coming. One of the things that I have noticed in my practice and um, a lot of other uh, mental health professionals have noticed is that over the past year, rates of anxiety have been increasing pretty dramatically. And so having an opportunity to come and to share with you just really practical, straightforward strategies that you can do on your own to help you manage maybe some of the increased anxiety that you may be feeling. Um, it's just, it's a wonderful opportunity and a blessing for me to be here. So I just wanted to say thank you. And I wanted to give a little bit of structure to this talk. So what we're going to start with is a brief description about anxiety as a whole. What is it? How is it maintained? What happens in the body physically when you experience anxiety? From there, we're going to use that information to guide the strategies that I want you all to learn tonight um, so that you can understand why you're actually using the strategies that you're using so that it makes sense in a logical format as you're trying to implement, implement these skills, okay? So first and foremost, any time I talk maybe, let's see if I can get my slides up. Whoop, no slides. Anyways, we'll go without that. All right, we'll make an adjustment. Anytime I talk about anxiety, I always want to start with the difference between stress and anxiety. Because what we do in this culture is we tend to use those two terms interchangeably. And we behave as if they are the same thing. The reality is, is that they're not the same thing. 
the response in the body to both anxiety and stress is very similar, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment, but anxiety and stress are different, and it's important to know the difference so that you can better know how to cope with and manage each one, okay? So first and foremost, stress is all about an imbalance between demands and resources, okay? So if the demands on us are higher than the resources that we have available, then we're going to feel stressed, okay? Resources can be anything. It can be time. It can be energy. It can be intelligence. It can be previous education. It can be social support. It can be finances. Resources can go on and on and on. But the second that we see a demand that is placed on us that's more than the resources that we have to give, we're going to experience stress. So for example, excuse me, for example, hopefully this happens to nobody this week, but say somebody is driving this week and their car breaks down, okay? They take it into the shop. It's a $500 bill to get their car fixed. If that individual has thousands of dollars in the bank and a supportive person who can drive them to work this week or to school this week or wherever they're going, the level of stress is going to be low, right? Compare that with somebody else who has the same issue with their car car breaks down, it's going to cost $500 to fix, but they have $300 in their bank account, and they don't have any supportive person who can take them to their job, right? Their amount of stress is going to be high. The resources are not matching the demand. So when we're thinking about coping with stress, we have to levelize and we have to equalize demands and resources. So sometimes that means that you need to get more resources, get more support so that you can meet the demand that's placed on you, Sometimes that means that we have to lower the demands that are placed on us. And I have people coming in every week saying, Carissa, I know that I don't have enough resources to meet this demand. Teach me how to cope with that. Teach me how to be okay with that. I'm like, I actually can't do that, right? We we have to create some balance. So stress is about there's an imbalance, and we want to create balance there. Anxiety is different. Anxiety is about having a sense of unease or worry or fear about what's going to happen in the future. This sense that something bad is going to happen in the near or far future, and I'm having a reaction to that. I'm concerned about that, and I am worried about that. Okay? That's really what anxiety is. Okay? And so why do we even care to treat anxiety? Well, because anxiety actually causes an incredible amount of consequences for our lives and for our bodies. Okay, so here's a list. It is not an exhaustive list, but for people who have anxiety, they find it hard to concentrate. They struggle with appetite. In real acute kind of stressful or anxiety-inducing situations, appetite goes down or goes away completely. With chronic anxiety, we start to see that appetite going up and people overeating consistently. Um, Feeling that worry, that busy mind, unable to quiet that mind. GI upset, stomach issues. Okay, we're going to talk about why that happens in a minute. Poor sleep, irritability, muscle tension, headaches, pain throughout the body, and then lowered immune function. Our body actually responds to both stress and anxiety as if we are sick. It assumes that there is an invader, so like a virus or bacteria that has come in, and our immune system starts fighting nothing. Okay? And so our immune system is fighting and fighting and fighting because that anxiety tells it to fight. And then guess what happens when you are confronted with an actual invader? Your immune system's tired. And so it can't mount the attack that it needs to to actually deal with whatever that illness is that's trying to come in. 
right? So especially during this time, managing anxiety is a lovely thing for immune boosting, right? Okay, so let's talk for a minute then about how anxiety is maintained. How can we make sense of this beast called anxiety, okay? The model that's gonna be shown on the screen is a model that is called the cognitive behavioral therapy model, okay? What this model tells us, if you look in the circles, in the gray circles, what it tells us is we are what we think, what we feel, and what we do, okay? And what we know through decades of research is that our thoughts, our feelings, and our behaviors, they are all interconnected and they impact one another bi-directionally. So how you feel affects how you think. And then how you think feeds back and affects how you feel. Same thing with thoughts and behaviors. What you think affects what you do, what you do affects what you think, and what you feel affects what you do, what you do affects how you feel, okay? And so the, the way that we can understand anxiety through this model is if we're talking about the feeling of anxiety, okay, that is prompting or driving thoughts of, I am in danger, there is a threat, okay? Now that can be a million different thoughts that fall under that category, but that's the category of thought. So you can wake up and feel anxious, it is possible, right? You can smell something in the environment and that can trigger an anxiety response. And then the thoughts come in after the fact and they say, I am in danger, this is a threat. Once those thought patterns start, that feeds the initial anxiety and it, it makes it worse, okay? So it's this feedback loop, they feed off of one another, okay? And the behaviors that go with anxiety are avoidance behaviors, okay? When people are feeling anxious and they're thinking there is a threat, there is a danger, they avoid, they pull back. So somebody who experiences social anxiety, one of their friends comes and says, oh, I'm inviting you to a party. There's going to be 75 people. It's going to be amazing. This is pre-COVID time, right, of course. That person immediately says, oh, right, threat. What if I embarrass myself? What if I don't wear the right thing? What if they judge me? I'm not going to the party, right? So that avoidance is the behavior that goes along with that initial anxiety. What happens, though, because of this relationship, that avoidance it gives immediate relief, but what it actually does is it actually feeds the anxiety, okay, in the long run. So the important thing to know in this model and as we go through this talk is that whatever anxiety tells you to do, whatever it tells you to think, however it tells you to behave to manage the anxiety, that's going to feed it, okay? Our emotions love themselves. They're going to tell you to think and behave in ways that actually fuel that original emotion itself which is why it's hard to manage anxiety because all the things you think that you should do to manage it actually make it worse. And so today I wanna give you strategies to actually help reduce that anxiety and make it a little bit better. And so in just a little bit, we're gonna focus on the thought part of the model. I'm gonna give you um, a specific strategy to actually deal with the thought piece and modifying the way that you're thinking. And then we're also gonna add a piece for the behavior part of the model. So what you can do to tackle that, that, um, that pattern of avoidance that fuels anxiety, okay? Before I can do that though, I really wanna make sure that everybody understands what happens in your body when you're feeling anxiety, okay? It also goes with stress because the response is the same. It's important to understand what goes on in the body, okay? So bear with me for just a minute. 
mild, mild anatomy physiology lesson. Okay, we're going to be talking about our nervous system. So anybody that has had um, an anatomy class recently, or if anybody has taken a psychology class, right, you're going to always talk about the nervous system. So in the nervous system, of course, we have the brain and the spinal cord. That's what we call the central. I'm not testing you. It's fine. You don't have to remember this, but just letting you know. Brain and spinal cord. And then we have the peripheral nervous system. And that's really what we're going to be focusing on the most today. And that peripheral nervous system is split into two pieces. The somatic nervous system, which is controlling that voluntary muscle movement. It's the nerves that kind of innervate all of our muscles and allow us to move. They also pick up on sensory information. We're focusing on the part of the nervous system that we call the autonomic nervous system, okay? And the way that you can remember this is this controls all of the automatic processes in your body. It controls breathing. It controls heart rate. It controls digestion, pupil dilation, things like blood pressure and muscle tension, okay? That's the part of the nervous system that we're going to be talking about because this is the part of the nervous system that really lights up in anxiety, okay? So I want to go through and tell you how, how our nervous system responds when we perceive threat because that's what's going on when we are experiencing anxiety. So what you're going to see on the screen is you're going to see a description of how the, this part of our nervous system is organized. And this was developed by Dr. Stephen Porges. And I, I am just using all of his information and his decades of research now to, to explain this, this to you. So this is not mine. This, all the credit goes to him for that. What, where we want to spend most of our time, we want to spend most of our time in an activation of what we call our ventral vagal nervous system, okay? Our ventral vagal response within the nervous system, excuse me. So let me, let me give you a picture to try to help it make a little bit more sense. So let's say you're walking through the woods, okay? It's a beautiful day. You're walking through the woods. You're feeling great, right? You're just, you're paying attention. You're looking at the sky. You're noticing the wind through, through the leaves. You're smelling the fresh air. You're having a great time. You're safe you will be experiencing what we call ventral vagal dominance at that time, okay? That sensation of I am safe, I am present, I can be connected, I can learn, I can engage with my world. I don't necessarily have to be relaxed, but I am present and my nervous system is feeling very safe, okay? You continue to walk through those woods, 30 yards up ahead you see a bear, okay? Immediately, your body is going to drop into sympathetic activation, which is the way we call fight or flight, okay? So you perceive threat, and your body goes into fight or flight, okay? So if anybody has ever experienced fight or flight, we should have all experienced it at least a few times, your body is having this cascade of automatic responses that show up to prepare you to either run away from the threat or fight it if you have to. Okay, so what we see is your heart rate goes up, okay? That's to pump more blood to your extremities so you can run or fight. Your breathing gets shallower and quicker, right? That quick turnover of oxygen, again, to prepare you to run or to fight. Interestingly enough, your pupils actually dilate, so you can actually see the world a little bit better, which is so cool, okay? Your muscles get tense, right? So if anybody has ever dealt with chronic stress or anxiety, right? Neck pain, headaches, shoulders, like up here, that's that automatic tension. So again, you're ready to run quickly or you're ready to fight if you need to. Your digestive system 
pretty much turns off. Okay? We actually expend 15 to 20% of the calories that we burn in any given day, the energy that we spend, we use that digesting food. Okay? It's actually it's a high energy activity to digest food. And our body, which is just beautifully designed, it says, I'm not wasting that energy. If I have to run or fight, no, <laughs> right? I'm going to direct all of the energy away from that system. And so what we see with people who experience a lot of anxiety is a lot of stomach upset because if you eat, that food is now just sitting. It's partway through the digestive process. It might sit, or you might experience what we lovingly call the dumping syndrome, which is... I don't want this inside of me if I've got to run or fight. That's inconvenient. So it can go this way or it can go this way, but it needs to get out, okay? So chronic GI issues is very, very common with people who have anxiety because the system is constantly being turned off throughout the day because the body goes into that threat response, okay? So that is fight or flight. Now... If the bear is 30 yards in front of you, probably in fight or flight. If the bear is right here and about to grab you, our body is actually more likely to go into a response that's called a dorsal vagal response. This is our freeze response. This is our response where we immobilize, we become paralyzed, we freeze, we numb, we disconnect. Okay. So the purpose of this response is when I can't get away, I have to reduce physical and emotional pain. And oh, by the way, if I play dead, maybe I'm going to survive that attack. Okay? So this is part of where um, when people experience high levels of pain, they faint. That's a dorsal vagal response. Anybody who struggles with needle phobias or blood phobias and they have to go and get a shot or blood drawn and they faint, that's a dorsal vagal response, right? That's this pure disconnection, right? I'm, I'm just, I'm disconnecting from this threat so that hopefully I can survive and I can reduce the amount of pain that I have to experience, okay? All of these responses are adaptive and healthy and they are designed for survival, okay? What happens with anxiety though is our system starts to perceive threat too often. And that can be because of our history. It can be because of, excuse me, memories. It can be because of conditioning. It can be lots and lots of reasons. But our body starts to kind of pay attention, and it says, hmm, that thing that I just smelled, that's a threat. That sensation that I just felt, that's a threat. This situation, that's a threat. The feeling inside of me is a threat. This happens with people who experience chronic pain or chronic illness. A sensation inside the body throws them into threat, right? And so what we see with people with anxiety is rather than spending most of their time up in that ventral vagal safe, connected, present place, they're spending a lot of their day in either fight or flight or freeze, okay? You actually don't really have a choice which one you drop to also, which I think is important to note. This initial response that happens in your body, this is outside of cognitive awareness, okay? This is an automatic reflexive response. So this is happening kind of in the same way where if you put your finger on a hot stove, you pull it away, and then you say, oh, that's hot. The thought catches up much later. So really, your nervous system controls how you respond in those moments. So you can't sit here and say, ooh, I don't want to disconnect. I need to be present. Let me stay in fight or flight, right? That, that's not a choice. 
But what we can do is we can recognize this is how our body responds, and we can be intentional about practicing activities with our body to help it better regulate itself when it's perceiving too much threat throughout the day, okay? So let's talk, let's talk about how to do that, okay? Very, very, very basic strategies to do this, okay? So what we're looking at is if you are somebody who tends to drop to that, the freeze response, that paralysis, the immobilize, the disengage, okay? What we have to do first is we have to bring you up. We have to mobilize your system first before you can regulate and come to that safe place. If you're somebody that likes to spend a lot of time in fight or flight, what we actually have to do is we have to calm that system, okay? And we can actually do both of those. We can bring you up from that paralysis place and we can bring you um, up out of that fight or flight with a lot of the same strategies, okay? So the first strategy is incredibly simple and incredibly basic and usually when I tell people, they look at me and they're like, are you kidding me? Is this what you're telling me to manage my anxiety? And I say, yes, because it actually works, okay? It is literally this, this swaying or rocking, which is really hard to do standing up, so bear with me. This is supposed to be a rock, okay? Rocking or swaying sounds ridiculous on the surface, but think about a natural time in somebody's life when they rock or when they sway. If you have ever babysat, if you have younger siblings or cousins, if you have children, if you have grandchildren, when you pick up a little kid, especially an infant, you almost can't not sway, right? They have chairs, rocking chairs. Why? Because we actually inherently know that swaying and rocking is very regulating for our nervous system. It creates that sense of safety for our nervous system, okay? And so we do that for little ones, and then as we become adults, we say, mm, that's strange, I'm not gonna do that. Do it, okay? Think about swinging for children. Why do you think kids love to swing so much? One, it's an awesome activity, but two, it's also regulating. It's that motion, that back and forth. It's that same swaying motion that regulates their system, okay? So if you are somebody that spends a lot of time disconnected or paralyzed or numb, a little bit of that rocking and that movement can give you enough to keep you present and keep you engaged in the moment so that you're not over here and not paying attention to the moment because you're disconnected. If you're already activated, a little bit of rocking and swaying can actually give you the calming response that you need to feel a sense of safety, okay? With that, let's talk about movement in general, okay? If you are somebody that is more shut down, disconnected, numb, right? You're kind of, you're sitting at work and you just kind of check out for a little bit and it's like, oh shoot, did somebody say something to me? Where was I at? I was nervous, right? Creating movement will keep you present and allow you to regulate better. So again, think of children, because we actually tend to do a better job with helping children <laughs> with, um, with anxiety and things than, than we do with adults. Think about fidget spinners and fidget toys, right, in the classroom. Yes, they do help with attentional problems like ADHD, okay? They also help for those kids who are anxious or maybe have trauma who disconnect, right? If I move, if I play with the fidget spinner, I can stay present to learn, right? What looks like an attention problem may very well be an anxiety problem, okay? And so thinking about if you're at work, if you're at school, can you, can you sit on a stability ball and bounce and do that instead of a chair. If you're in a meeting, 
um, or listening to a lecture online or something like that, can you have a piece of, pa piece of paper off to the side where you're doodling or drawing or moving? Can you have a stress ball to keep you moving so that you can stay present, okay? If you are somebody that is in more of that fight or flight response, we wanna do more intense movement, okay? Because your body wants to move. The physiological response says run or fight, right? And too often I see people going and saying, well, I, I, I tried to breathe, which is good, and I'm gonna talk about it in 30 seconds, okay? It's a good thing. But if you are standing in the woods and you're staring at a bear 30 yards away and I say, just breathe, right? How well is that gonna work? It's not gonna work, right? Move your body first, let it complete its natural cycle, then try to breathe, okay? So this movement can simply be walking around, it can be swinging your arms, okay? It can be actual exercise and activity. I usually tell people when the anxiety is really high and when it's, it's raising pretty high and people are saying, oh my gosh, it's so high, I'm worried I'm gonna experience panic, right? I say drop and give me as many push-ups as you can give me, right? Give me as many jumping jacks as you can give me. If you can do burpees, do burpees, okay? The intensity of the exercise is matching the intensity of that threat and stress response. Complete the activity, burn the energy, complete the cycle, then start using techniques that we're gonna talk about like breathing, okay? So intentional movement throughout the day can really help manage what's going on in the physical body throughout the day, okay? All right, so next up, let's talk breathing, okay? This is another one of those things where almost every client that I work with, when I say, okay, we're gonna do breathing, they say, ugh, why? I have tried this like five times, it doesn't work, can we not? And I say, mm, no. And I say that because most often the reason that it's not working is because people are using the skill incorrectly. Okay, so I wanna talk to you about how do we actually use breathing appropriately to help regulate our, our body and our nervous system and calm us down, okay? So this is usually when I tell people, okay, when you're anxious and you're trying to calm down with your breath, show me what you do, okay? This is usually what I see. It's something along the lines of this. And I say, okay, that's okay, but I see why you're still anxious, okay? So first and foremost, we do not want to breathe into our chest, okay? If we are breathing into our chest, that is going to keep us in fight or flight, okay? That is how we breathe when we run and when we fight. It gives us that quick turnover of oxygen, right? It's not super deep, and the focus is on the inhale. All of that keeps us in fight or flight. So if you're doing that, you're right, it's not, it's not gonna help the anxiety at all, okay? So what we wanna focus on first, we need to be breathing into the belly button. Okay, diaphragmatic breathing. If you are a musician, you probably do it incredibly well. That's the population that breathes the best, okay? Or yoga instructors, fabulous, okay? We wanna be breathing into that belly, okay? So um, I'm gonna set the mic down in a second to show you how this works, but usually to practice it, I have people, you put one hand on your chest, one hand on your belly. The hand on your chest should not move, the hand on your belly should move. You're not gonna see mine move because I'm standing up, um, so that's gonna be hard to see, but you can notice that the one on my chest doesn't move. So this is what it should look like. The 
hand on the chest doesn't move. We don't need chest activation. We need to move the diaphragm down to take that deep cleansing breath. And then, really importantly, we need to focus on the exhale, okay? A long exhale actually sends a message through that vagal nerve that says, turn on that ventral side of the parasympathetic nervous system, okay? Turn it on, and that calms us down, okay? So the way, there's tons of different ways to breathe in a way that actually calms your nervous system down. I'm gonna show you one because it's easy. It's a normal breath into your belly, and it's an exhale for a count of four, and then you pause for one or two seconds, and then you do it again. So it looks like this. And then in. Okay, that's it. I usually have people start with four, well, five to six breaths, that's usually about a minute. And to practice that three times a day, morning, sometime in the afternoon, and before you go to bed, okay? Where people go wrong, even if they're breathing well, excuse me, is that they wait till they're anxious to practice it. It doesn't work that way. We have to practice the skill and we have to train the body to use it well. If you are somebody who is anxious and you spend a lot of time, fight or flight or freeze, and I give you a skill and it actually calms your body down, do you want to know what your body does? It has a freak out. It says, wait, I live over here and now I'm relaxed. It's a threat to be relaxed. And then it actually increases anxiety, okay? So people who start with breathing for 5, 10, 15 minutes, a lot of times they can't tolerate it because we have to teach your body that it's okay to relax, that it's okay to feel safe, that the world doesn't end when that happens. So a minute at a time when you're not anxious, okay? That is like practicing before a game. Very few people probably go and pick up a basketball for the first time, shoot some hoops and say, sweet, I'm ready for varsity, put me in. You're not ready for varsity yet. You have to practice the skill first. So this would be a skill that I would tell you every single day. When you get really good at it, wonderful. You can increase the time all you want, but you have the skill built, so when you need to use it during a time when you're really anxious, it actually works, okay? Along with that type of breathing, one other skill that we can use to regulate our body that's very simple is sighing. <sighs> okay? Just like swaying and rocking, think about sighing. Okay? We inherently sigh when we need regulation. You're super frustrated and annoyed, <sighs> right? That's actually our system trying to regulate itself. Okay? You are enjoying something and you're relaxed and you're having a great time. That's to keep you there, okay? So it's taking what our body already knows how to do and doing it on purpose throughout the day, okay? It's quicker to do that than take a minute to breathe, so you can practice that throughout the day. I just tell people, if you are gonna practice sighing, please warn the people who are around you because you sighing is gonna put them into fight or flight, right? That's gonna be perceived as a threat by them. So you wanna warn them, hey, I'm trying this new breathing thing. It helps me breathe, whatever you wanna say, but warn them so then they don't experience that threat response at the same time, okay? Okay, excellent. So that's strategies to manage the body, okay? Now let's talk about strategies to manage the mind. 
so to manage those thoughts that fuel anxiety, okay? And so what we're going to talk about for a minute is we are going to talk about worry, okay? Worry on the surface, at the core, what worry is, quote-unquote, supposed to be is not a bad thing, okay? The reason that we have the ability to worry, a.k.a. anticipate that something bad could happen in the future, okay, is in order for us to make a plan that we can put into action to try to prevent that bad thing from happening in the future. So at its core, not bad, right? If you want to build a house, and you want to build a house really close to the river, and you look, and there's a rainstorm, and you see the river, right, raising, you say, hmm, right? That ability to anticipate a bad thing that could happen in the future may tell you, to move my house 20 feet up the bank and I'm going to build up there, okay? That's okay. Anticipating the future is okay. What happens is that we use worry inappropriately. We don't use it to say, this could happen, let me create a plan of action and let me implement the plan. Now worry's done, right? It just guided us to a plan and it guided us to action. We don't use it that way, okay? If anybody in this room has ever worried, what happens? You have a thought, 40 minutes later, you're still stuck on the same thought. Or you've created 15 plans of action, none of which you have put into place, none of which you may ever put into place. They're just spinning inside your head, right? Not helpful at that level, okay? So this is a flow sheet that I want to show you to help you understand when am I using my ability to anticipate the future, right? When am I using that appropriately? And when do I need to let that go and try a different skill? Okay. And so there are three questions that you get to ask yourself. Okay. This, this second and third question, they're really two parts of the same question, but we'll break it into three. Number one, when you catch yourself worrying, first question, is this a real problem now? Okay. If you think about the things that maybe you worry about in your life, how many of those problems are not actually real now, right? What if I get cancer 15 years down the road? What if my kids don't make it into college? My oldest is eight right now, so again, that's a while, 10 years down the road, right? What if this happens? So many of the things that we think about are not actually real problems now. Guess what? If it's not a real problem right now, you cannot solve it because it's not a real problem. That's like me and having my six-year-old come up to me and say, hey, mom, what is P-R-Q-U-V-S-T? What does that spell, right? So he's trying to learn and learning how to read and learning how to spell, um, right? That's, we're in the same spot when we're trying to solve a problem that doesn't actually exist yet. We cannot do it. There is no solution to that, just like there is no actual word that matches those letters. So we need to actually step away from that worry and practice either distraction or self-soothing. And I'm going to tell you what self-soothing is in a, minute, in a minute once we get through this flow sheet, okay? Now, people say, okay, well, even if it's not a real worry, Krista, I still need to worry. And I say, why? Even if it's not a real problem, why? Because if I worry, I'm more prepared for when the bad thing happens, right? That somehow prepares me to cope better down the road, okay? 100% false. It doesn't work. 
Okay? There's, there's a reason for why that doesn't work, but the way that I can guarantee you that it doesn't work is because I have a job. Okay? If that actually worked, people wouldn't need therapy, right? They wouldn't come to me for treatment of anxiety because I already anticipated it in my own mind and I thought about it and I worried about it and it happened and it didn't bother me. It doesn't work, okay? You might feel like it works, doesn't, excuse me, doesn't work, okay? So if you determine that it is a real problem now, loved one, loved one has a significant illness, okay? real problem right now. Then you go into the second question. Can I solve it? And is now a good time? Okay. This part, I think, is the hardest part for people. Okay. The reality is, is that a lot of the problems that we are faced with, we cannot solve. And we hate it. Okay. A loved one has a significant medical issue right, or physical illness. I can't solve that, but I want to, right? It is so hard for us to let go of the control that we think we have over our own life. We actually have about this much control, okay? We think we have more, and we are desperately holding on to perceived control. So this idea that I could love somebody and they could be sick, right, and I can't fix it, I'm going to worry about it. I'm going to worry about it, right? Because then I'm doing something except you're not, right? What you're doing is you're just causing harm to yourself, okay? Because worrying about something actually is a trigger for that threat response. Our brain doesn't know the difference between when we are imagining something happening or worrying about it and when it actually happens. It's the same physiological response, okay? So by worrying about it, what you're doing is you're making yourself anxious, stressed, and potentially sick, and it's not protecting them. And it's hard to take that breath and to say, I'm going to acknowledge that I can't control that. Okay, so if you cannot solve it, or now's not the right time to solve it, maybe you can solve it in the future, but now's not the right time, then we're going to go back to this distraction, intentionally turning your mind to something else in your life, right, or self-soothing, which again I'll talk about in a second, okay? If you go through all those questions, is this a real problem now? Can I solve it? Yup. Is now the right time to solve it? Yes. Then stop thinking and solve it, okay? We prioritize thought. You don't have to go through 12 iterations or ideas about how to solve it. Create a plan, put it into action, and actually solve the problem, okay? Don't think about it. Do. Take action. Action is what's going to reduce the anxiety in the long run because you're actually solving the problem, okay? So let's talk about what to do during those times when maybe it's not a real problem, but you're really focused on it and concerned about it, or it is a very real problem that you cannot solve. How do we cope with that? So we talked very, very simply, distraction, finding something else to do, something else to engage in. Beautiful, you can do that. Or you, you can engage in an activity called self-soothing. And you can do that with sensory experiences, okay? So let me give you an example of how this works because my mind works better in pictures than it does in words. So imagine a time in your life where a, a young child has fallen down, they've scraped their knee, it's bloody, they're crying, and they run to you, right, with tears. Think about what you do, okay? 
hopefully you do something like you scoop them up and you give them a hug. Maybe you rub their back, right? Maybe you quietly talk in their ear and you say, it's going to be okay. We'll take care of it. We'll fix it, okay? And then you go ahead and you find like the magic weapon, right? Do any of you know what the magic weapon is that you can use to fix everything when you have a kid with a skin knee? A Band-Aid, right? Maybe it has Mickey Mouse on it. Maybe it has Power Rangers, but it's a Band-Aid, right? You put that Band-Aid on, they go about their day, okay? You did not solve their problem. All of those things that you did are amazing and wonderful. Continue to do them. None of them solve the problem. The knee is still injured. It's still bleeding under that Band-Aid. It still hurts. What you did is you provided sensory information to allow that child to soothe and to provide a moment of comfort. So what you did is you shifted the way that they related to the problem. You didn't take care of the problem. You didn't get rid of it. This is what we need to start to do for ourselves, okay? What I see adults do is we have a problem, right? We can't solve it. We're distressed about it. And so the way that I see re adults respond to that is they tell themselves, suck it up, you big baby. It's fine. It doesn't matter. Get over it. What's wrong with you? Why are you anxious about it? Just stop. Just stop being anxious, right? And they start speaking in just nasty ways to themselves, thinking that that's going to somehow make it better. Or they turn to substances, right? Drinking, smoking, so, so I can just distract or disengage, or other types of behavioral addictions like gambling and things like that. No wonder people are relying so much on that control. So if I worry, or if I'm just a jerk to myself, <laughs> worry is going to sound a little bit better. So what I want you to start to think about is very, very, very simplistic things you can do with your sensory system to give you a moment of calm, a moment of breath. It's not going to solve the problem. We already know that you can't solve the problem. Do you have a picture that you can look at? The lock screen on my phone is my two kids cracking up and looking at one another laughing. Okay, there's a reason for that. Is there something that you can touch that provides you a little bit of comfort? Has anybody in here, I can't, um, online you could raise your hand if so because they're amazing. Does anybody know what a comfy is? Oh my word, look them up. They are amazing. It's basically the softest blanket you have ever had in your entire life turned into a hoodie and it goes down like covers the three quarters of your body. It's incredible, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm not sponsored by Comfy, but if you go buy one, maybe they'll give me a kickback. I don't know. No, they're amazing. That's sensory soothing, right? You have a stressful day. You can come home. Where, is there a particular blanket? Is there a sweatshirt that you like to put on? Is there a particular warm drink that you like to drink? Is there music that helps calm and regulate your system, right? These things sound ridiculous on the surface, and yet they work, Okay. I'm going to use an example of a couple of years ago. My mom had a very significant stroke. If my mom is watching, sorry, I didn't tell you I was going to talk about you. Um, she had a very significant stroke. And so my family and I were in um, the ICU. She was in the ICU for seven days, so we spent seven days in the waiting room of the ICU. What we did every morning and every afternoon, there was a Starbucks in the hospital. We went, and we each got a coffee drink every morning, every afternoon. Mine were decaf because I couldn't handle that much caffeine, right? Did it solve the problem? No. Did it give us a moment in time every morning and every afternoon that allowed us to breathe 
and allowed us to center and allowed us to just feel good for a moment? Yes. Okay. Did they know, did my family know what they were doing? No, probably not. Did I know what I was doing? Yes. Did I tell them? No, because it was not the right time. That's sensory soothing. Little tiny things. Getting a hug from somebody that you care about and actually knowing, you know what, I have to get a hug right now. Can you just hold me for a second? Can you sit next to me for a second? What are those things? Looking in your environment, what are those things that give you a moment to help you get through to the next moment? right? When maybe you can distract or do something else so that you can continue to live in a world where there's a lot of problems that you can't solve. Okay? Making sense in here so far? Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So let's shift then. Let's talk about the behaviors that go with anxiety. Okay? So we talked about in that initial model, that cognitive behavioral model, we talked about how Anxiety promotes avoidance behaviors, and avoidance maintains anxiety. So let me, let me just describe how this works. Because most people who engage in avoidance behavior, they say, well, it actually works, though, Carissa. My anxiety goes down when I engage in avoidance. And I say, you know what? You're right. You do get immediate relief. Here's why. Okay. Let's use that example of just somebody who has social anxiety and they get invited to a party. Let's use that example, okay? The fear usually with individuals who have social anxiety is that they will be judged negatively, they will embarrass themselves, um, they, will be, they will be rejected, right, if, if they are around people. That's usually the fear. So they get a call from their friend. They say, hey, there's this big party. Come on. Come and hang out at this party with us. And they say, Maybe initially they say, okay, and their anxiety. Let's say it's, let, it starts at a three or four out of ten. They've got some anxiety. And as the time gets closer to going to that party, what happens is that anxiety goes up. Okay, it goes up and up. Let's say it hits a seven. Okay, and that person says, nope, nope, it's too high. I can't do it. It's too uncomfortable. I'm not going to the party. Immediate relief. They feel better. Yep, they do. Okay, the problem is that their brain has learned two things in that experience. Okay. First thing it has learned is if I want to manage my anxiety, I have to run away. I have to avoid, right? Because that anxiety was going up, okay? And what the brain learned, whoop, well, it went up until I decided not to go. So that's the only way that I can actually manage my anxiety. And if I don't avoid, it's going to go up and up and up forever, and I'm going to lose control, okay? So the brain says, that's the only way to manage your anxiety. And the brain also learns that the only reason the bad thing didn't happen, the only reason the judgment, the embarrassment, right, the rejection, the only reason that that didn't happen is because they didn't go. It's because they avoided. So we have a lovely brain, right? It says it wants to prevent bad things from happening. So if the only way I can control the anxiety is to avoid, and the only way that I can prevent a bad thing from happening is to avoid, what do you think I'm going to do the next time? Avoid. And how do you think your brain is going to get you to avoid the next time? Maybe it's going to make you a little bit more anxious. Because if your anxiety started at a three or a four, and it took you to a seven to avoid, what if I just start at a five? Because I make that jump from five to seven a lot more quickly. Okay? And so what we see is that avoidance, if nothing else, it maintains that level of anxiety. But usually what I see is it actually makes anxiety go up in the long run because I'm keeping you safe, right? Your brain is trying to keep you safe. So what we have to do is we have to 
avoid avoidance, for lack of a better term. We have to start to engage in the activities that cause us anxiety, right? Here's what happens in you, if you engage in those activities, right? That person decides, you know, you know what? I'm just, I'm going to go to the party. I'm going to make it through the party. I'm going to do it. After the party, what happens is the brain learns two things. Number one, my anxiety went up. It did, and it will, okay? What we typically see is that anxiety is going to go up and it's going to plateau, okay? Often what we notice is that it then goes down after a period of time, okay? Sometimes it doesn't go down, but it will go up and it will plateau. It can't go up and up and up forever. It'll plateau, okay? And so what that person learns is either, ooh, my anxiety naturally came down on its own, or they learn my anxiety went up and it stayed up and I tolerated it. I survived it. Okay. And they learn, you know that thing that I was afraid of happening at the party? Didn't happen. I had a good time. Or if it did happen, I survived it. I tolerated it. Okay? So when you do that, the brain learns, oh, I don't need that anxiety so much. And so the next time you're invited to the party, your anxiety is going to be the same. Okay? But then you do it again and again and again, and we see anxiety actually going down, okay? Our brain needs repetition to learn things. So this is part of why people, um, people will come to me with a, a fear of flying, and they're very anxious about flying. And they say, well, Krista, I've gotten on 15 planes in my life. Why doesn't my anxiety go down, right? If approaching the thing that I'm afraid of, if that works, why hasn't mine go da gone down? And I say, well, because they're too, they're too episodic. They don't happen enough for your brain to really learn and kind of cement that new learning in. If you go on a flight once a year, it's tough for your brain to learn something new. But if you get invited to five different events over the course of five weeks and you go, your brain's gonna learn something different, okay? If you have anxiety when you drive your car and you're afraid of driving on the highway, right? And so you take back roads instead, if you start working your way onto the highway day in and day out, we're going to see that anxiety go down. Okay. So how do we go about approaching those things that we usually avoid? I am not telling you to leave here today and say, forget it. Everything that I'm afraid of, everything that I'm anxious about, I'm just doing. That's overwhelming for your system. Don't do that. Okay. Take a stepwise approach. Okay. If you're anxious about driving on the highway, Maybe have a trusted person in the car with you who helps to calm you down, right? And then maybe you go out at 10 a.m. when there's not many people on the road, and maybe you pop onto the highway between Bowling Green and Perrysburg, and then you get off. One new learning experience. Awesome. And then you do it again, right? If you're afraid of social situations, maybe you lean into those. If you're afraid of what's happening inside of your own body, Maybe you take a breath and actually just pay attention to how your heart feels right now versus, oh my gosh, I'm having a heart attack. I need to go to the doctor. Who can I tell? Who can I make sure that I'm okay with, right? Who can give me reassurance? Who can do all of that? Maybe I just sit with it for a few minutes, right? And I start to lean into and approach those things that I'm afraid of, okay? 
So take a step, stepwise approach. Engage in some of those body strategies. You can use your breathing here, right? You can rock, you can sway, you can move. You can have objects that, right, give you a little bit of calming and soothing. You can have those there with you. We don't want to make you miserable, but we do want to just start to get this idea of I lean into the things that I'm afraid of versus I automatically run away, okay? All right, excellent. So last, last little bit, really just reiterating um, most of the things that I have said with one tiny additional piece of information, if I can get my paper to turn. It's dry and cold, okay. So just, just to recap, allow for plenty of opportunity for movement throughout the day, always. The more stationary we become, and with COVID, the vast majority of us have become even more stationary than what we were before. Move your body as much as you can. That helps to regulate your system. Have those self-soothing. Go through your house. Try things out. What are those things that give you just a little bit of comfort and calm? Okay. Develop a flexible structure and routine. We can adapt to change more effectively when we have some structure and, and routine behind us. So if one area of our life is changing, then build in routine for the rest of it, right? So with COVID, part of what happened was people's entire routines were disrupted all at once. That's overwhelming. So if you're going to disrupt something, let's talk about vacation. Vacations are awesome, right? Usually, do you know how many people come to me and say, I'm so anxious about vacation? Lots of people tell me that. Vacation is a disruption to the routine, right? So if you're going on vacation, maybe you still plan your meals at the same time, right? Maybe you create activities that are typical for you during the day. You get up at the same time, you go to bed at the same time to give you some of that structure to help you better tolerate the change and maybe enjoy the change that's coming, okay? And then the last piece, it's the word and. It is a three-letter word. It is my most favorite word. Start to use it, okay? What anxiety tells us is it tries to have us kind of falsely categorize things, okay? It's good. It's bad. It's safe. It's dangerous. I can do it. I can't do it. And it creates this dichotomy between basically opposites, right? And then what happens is you bicker in your mind with yourself, can I do it? No, I can't do it. Here's why. No, here's all the reasons why you can. No, I can't, right? And you can do that back and forth. That's part of that worry. Pull away from the argument with yourself. You can do that literally just by saying and. I think I can do it. And I think I can't. This situation is safe. And it feels dangerous to me. Okay? I did a really good job at this particular thing, and here's where I screwed up. It's allowing both to be present at the same time. There's no fighting inside your own mind when you do that. Yes, they may seem opposite, and they both exist together, so let them. Don't fight on the different sides of your own experience, okay? So hopefully some of these strategies will be useful for you. They are very practical in nature. Hopefully you can start to implement them. If it seems like these strategies are not enough, there is help available. There are lots of mental health professionals out there who are available to help um, and to assist if you still just can't get a handle on 
on anxiety. We just scratched the surface of tools that are available to you. There are lots and lots and lots out there. Um, so I know that Kyle is gonna be coming up in just a minute, and so I will put um, up on the screen um, for those of you online who want to see, and those of you here, um, just a couple of books that are available. They are all on Amazon. None of them are expensive, but they're great resources um, just for you if you are looking at wanting to learn more skills to, to manage that anxiety on your own. All right, thank you. Almost. <laughs> trouble with a mask because you never know if you put it on before you do it. Okay, we figured it out. So, um, yeah, the claps are for good reason. Uh, the dialogue online that, that we were watching were saying, are there any questions? And, and one of the responses for Carissa was, um, she's explaining things so well, what could we ask? Uh, which is a great response, uh, and yet we do know there are questions out there. So let me start, um, and I'm actually going to sit here and just sort of uh, be the proxy. So if you guys have questions in the room, uh, the time is now, so you can walk them over this direction and give them to Veronica. If you have questions online, uh, we have those. We're up with those, and we're ready to uh, receive those. And they're looking at me like I'm doing something wrong. Maybe a little better. Um, so the first question we have is, is, if I'm in the doom loop of the anxiety cycle, mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of things that you've laid out that I could do, mm -hmm. and I know everybody's going to be unique, but where would be a starting, thank you, where would be a starting point, um, or maybe where, where would the, the average person, can you kind of go with that, and so, okay, here's where you would start if you're in that doom loop of anxiety creates problems, creates anxiety creates problems. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So, really, I, I do think that it depends on you and your body. If it is me, I'm going to move, and I'm going to breathe because those are the quickest things to pause that cycle. And if you are especially experiencing like that fight or, well, fight or flight or that, that freeze response, it's hard to work on your cognitions when you're activated in that way because you are engaged in that threat response. And so you're not thinking about what you want to have for dinner when a bear's chasing you, right? That happens later. You're just reacting. So thinking of can I actually calm that response down so that I can be present and engaged enough to try something different with my thoughts, to actually evaluate if that thought makes sense in the moment, to evaluate, whoo, I feel really anxious. Can I take that step forward? Do I need to take that step back? So I would do a lot of that movement, the breathing, kind of that, that body regulation first, because it gets you in a better place to use the other skills more effectively. So um, that, I think, is supremely helpful, because we're all kind of looking for step one. Um, Somebody online has a question for what step one might be, and part of that is, is there a weight at Dr. Watts' practice? I know the answer to this question, so I'm gonna ask a follow-up question as well, which is, if there is a weight, what would you suggest to somebody who's ready to take a first step into getting some help in managing anxiety? Yes, yes there is a weight. It's really long. Um, it, it, we were full before COVID, and then COVID happened, and now we are really, really, really full at the practice. As are a lot, to be very honest with you, a lot of mental health professionals are at capacity or over capacity right now, which on the one hand 
is, is tough to hear. On the other hand, it's amazing as a mental health professional for me to hear because that means that people are taking that step to actually reach out and seek help, which historically speaking has been hard for people to do. So I love the fact that people are reaching out to get help. So that being said, um, Phone calls to places are great <laughs> to, to see if somebody has an opening. There are a lot of self-help resources, though, that are available. The ones on the screen, they're great resources. They are incredibly user-friendly and easy um, to just understand, and the strategies are pretty straightforward to implement. So there are always those things that you can be doing on your own in the meantime. Um, but really, reaching out it, it might be a long while, but you can reach out, you can get on a wait list, and then you can practice some of these strategies and see how you respond to those. The nice thing about some of these strategies is these are gonna be kind of like initial starting places in treatment where, hey, let's teach you this, let's get you using these. If you're already using them, then you can just run with more intensive treatment, right? You don't have to do that prep work for the first few sessions, you can just start going. So kind of building those um, through, through the books and things could be helpful. So uh, Anna just put the, the slide with the three books on the screen and people were able to see that. And we'll post that on Facebook as well after this. So if anybody wants to go and like, I didn't take a picture of it or how do I go and find them, they'll be up there. Is that in a sense, uh, you're doing foundation work mm -hmm. maybe and learning some of the practices. So when someone comes to you in a practice, someone comes to somebody in your practice, uh, they have a foundation and you yep. are actually able to make progress yep. more expediently? Yep, absolutely. Okay. It'll be a lot quicker. Yes. Great. So you have some resources there. So we have a, a great question that's come in and this one, uh, I'm now curious. So thanks online for this question. Um, so you suggest movement. Mm -hmm. Now I've heard something else about weighted blankets that limit movement as being a soothing technique. Can mm -hmm. you explain the difference between something that limits your movement and something uh, that you would do in creating movement? Yes, yes. So. The place where weighted blankets can be really helpful for people is when the, the sensations of the body interacting with the world feel very threatening, right? And that in and of itself creates anxiety. So especially for originally these weighted blankets um, presented for individuals um, on the autism spectrum. Right? And so this idea of my body doesn't often feel space and the movement of my body and the interaction of my body with things in the environment is, is threatening and it's activating and it throws me too far. There's too much sensory stimulation coming into my body and it's distressing. So that weighted blanket closes that down. It's reducing that sensory information into the system to actually bring a sense of calm. Lots and lots of people who have anxiety use those. If they work, lovely. It's another way to calm. If you're really, really activated, I wouldn't go and do that as your first as your first step. I would burn off a little bit of that activity. I would do a little bit of breathing. And then in terms of like sleeping at night, when you're already trying to wind down and your body is relaxing and it lets you relax further, yes. If somebody comes into my office and they start to have a panic attack and I throw a weighted blanket on them, they're probably, they're, there's probably somebody out there that that would work with. The vast majority of people are not gonna respond super well to that. So yeah, it can be another tool. Um, so you would say maybe don't get, if using your dominant analogy for the night, don't get a bearskin weighted blanket. Right. Okay. With teeth and claws. Okay. No, don't do it. Yeah. Everybody heard. <laughs> not my idea. Um, this is a great question, and this is maybe something you could help us with. So um, I walk into your office, um, I walk into your house, and I'm coming to have dinner with your family, and I say, hey, I have a question. Can I pick your brain professionally for a minute? Is there a line, and can you help me find it, between I get anxious every once in a while, mm -hmm. 
and I am professionally diagnosed with anxiety, like I need to come and seek actual yep. professional help. How do, how do I know when I can practice some things and how do I know when I need to actually be seeking somebody? Lovely question. Um, and I'm gonna give you an imperfect kind of subjective answer. Um, I like to think of people's lives as like a big circle. Because again, I'm not an artist and I'm not creative. That's as good as it gets in my life, okay? A big circle, okay? I think of anxiety as a piece inside of that circle, okay? How big is your circle? How much space is anxiety taking up, okay? This is also another reason to approach the things that you're avoiding because as you avoid more and more things, your circle shrinks. Even if your anxiety stays the same, it's taking up a larger percentage of that circle. And what happens for some people is their life becomes so small, all they have left is anxiety. So even if it's not a lot of anxiety, that's the vast majority of their life, right? It's filled with it. So really for you to kind of think about how big is my life space? How big is that circle? What percentage of space is that anxiety taking up? And if you start to see that anxiety really encroaching on a good percentage of that space, I'm throwing out numbers, I don't know, 30, 40, 50, whatever, right? But at the, if it's starting to take up more space, come in. If your life is starting to shrink down to the point that you're struggling to find meaning and purpose and value because you're just focused on not feeling anxious, probably seek help then. So that would be a really easy physical equivalency when you talked a little about GI issues where I have an upset stomach yeah. occasionally yep. or every day I seem to be dealing with yes. an upset stomach and they're, they're just, I have a yeah. sense that there's something else happening. Yep. Okay. And I can't live my life with it because the pain is so much it's getting in the way. Yep. Excellent. You okay. Um, a two-parter. Um, does what you eat uh, contribute to anxiety? Is there maybe a way to phrase that? Is, is there a diet? Is there a way that what you put in is going to help you with anxiety? And then follow up or second question is, can you talk about the role of sleep and how it um, affects anxiety? Absolutely. There is a lot of research on food and anxiety, and there's a certification course that I plan to take next year, um, so I can really answer that question next year. <laughs> but in terms of really, when we look at diet, we want to look at real food that you could grow. We're looking at plants. We're looking at the, the good fats, the omega-3s. There's a lot of research on that, looking at reducing processed foods, reducing hydrogenated oils. It's all of that stuff that's out there that's the boring, not fun, healthy diet. That's the one that helps with anxiety. Some people um, that I have worked with have found that paleo slash keto just with their body helps them. Um, I haven't seen data actually like on a, a grand scale to see that that might be helpful. That could just be unique to their bodies. But th the normal, just healthy diet, that's what we want to see. Um, having appropriate levels of specific vitamins might help as well. So usually the recommendation at this point is really just a multivitamin will get you what you need for those. Sleep. Oh my goodness, I could do like five talks on sleep. I love, I love sleep. Um, and I love treating sleep issues. Um, yes, sleep is very much correlated with anxiety. If you have anxiety, you don't sleep as well. If you don't sleep as well, you have anxiety. So yes, good sleep is important. Uh, one of the things that I tell people who have anxiety, do not worry in your bed. If you get into your bed and you worry, get out of your bed. Okay? What happens is 
our brain is designed to create pairings between things, associations all the time. It's connecting things. So if you are lying in your bed and you're worrying at night, what happens is when you get into your bed the next night, your brain says, I'm supposed to worry. Let me wake them up, right? So it's going to wake you up because you're supposed to worry in bed. What we want is we want to train our brain to say, bed is for sleep. I get into bed. Ah, oh, it's time to go to sleep. I'm going to make her tired, right? So if you are worrying and if you can't shut it off, get out of bed. Go worry someplace else, okay? Or even better, read a book, okay? Do not get on your phone. Nope. That's, that's the death trap for sleep. Okay? You can. TV's not ideal, but if it's TV versus phone, watch a show. Like, not an intense show, right? But watch a show, something to distract. Wait until you are sleepy. Those eyes are really heavy. Then get into your bed. If you wake up in the middle of the night and worry, same thing. It's the worst. Get out of bed, right? Do that someplace else so that your bed can be that place of respite so that you can actually get better sleep. No. Phones in None. bed. That's what she said. Um, so you can deal with that as you like, because that is a great follow-up to our next question. Well, what connection are you seeing between social media and anxiety? Mm -hmm. And uh, do we need to delete all of our apps? Kidding, but not really kidding. And she's going to say, yes, sorry, not sorry. Maybe not. Okay. Absolutely. Yes. Um, you don't have to delete. Limit. Limit. Social media and news across the board limit as much as possible. We are inundated right now with information. The problem with the information is that it is feeding us with more problems that we can't solve, right? So we go right back to the thought thing. Here's a problem. It's important to me. I can't solve it. Shoot, I guess I better worry about it, right? So whether you see it on social media, whether you see it on the news, just don't digest so much because it puts you in a risky situation and it doesn't help you. The reality is, is being informed and knowing what somebody had for breakfast, right, or knowing that they look gorgeous on the beach with eight filters, or learning about the newest political thing that happened five minutes ago, but it's already been, like, talked about 55 different ways, that information doesn't actually do anything for you. You don't need it. It's just data for data's sake, and our brain has too much already. And the way that our brain copes with having too much information is it copes by using shortcuts. Those particular shortcuts, which we don't have time to get into now, those fuel anxiety and depression, those ways of thinking. So limit, limit, limit. Uh, let me ask you this. So during um, pandemic year, as a leader, I found myself feeling those um, peaks and valleys as mm -hmm. new protocols, new things, new COVID news. And what were we supposed to do with it? And there was a point during the year where we said we are, we are not called to be global leaders. I have no... And so we said we're going to focus on our hyper-local issues. Hyper-local, not just local, hyper-local. Mm -hmm. What affects our community, not the community next door. And that seemed to create a lot of peace in us. Is there a way um, to enact that sort of um, hyper-local life for an individual who's struggling with anxiety and is there a you know is there a two weeks is there a would, would you have sort of a an early prescription to, hey maybe try this great question um, I think it can look a lot of different ways but if you are consuming news of any type 15 minutes a day at the most because what you're going to naturally gravitate towards is local information right because that's important that's what you see that's what you're faced with limiting interactions, I hesitate to say this, 
limiting interactions through <laughs> online mechanisms like social media and things like that, unless they're people that you're actually going to see and that you actually care about, right? So if you're looking at your social media platforms and you have 400 people that you're connected to, why? Whittle it down. It is too much. It's too far away. It's somebody that I knew 15 years ago from something, and I don't care, but what they write really ticks me off, and now I'm agitated, and now I want to say something, but I'm not going to say something, but it's in my head, right? Don't do it, right? So to take the information and just allow it to be small, allow it to be relevant to you. We think we need to know about everything going on in the world because that's what keeps us safe. Not true right, and embracing that fact that that is, doesn't actually help you make a plan for action because it's not your problem to solve. So focus your time and energy on what is happening around you and only consume information. I shouldn't say only, but try to primarily consume information for the things that are around you. Um, thank you. I have a, this question, I'm gonna ask it and be faithful to ask it the way it was brought in. I don't know if it's dealing with uh, uh, illness, per se, or um, eating disorder, so okay. all context aside. Sure. Do you have tips for working with someone who gets anxious about vomiting a lot? Mm -hmm. Do you know what this means? I do know what that means. There is a name for that. It's called emetophobia. Um, it is a condition that lots and lots of people have. I would recommend that you actually find a provider who is well-trained in emetophobia. There is a very specific... Um, protocol that can be used that's highly effective. I have done it with multiple people. Um, it involves some interesting activities, I will be very honest, um, and they are effective. It works really, really well. So for that particular issue, I would absolutely reach out to a trained provider so they can walk you through it. You have answers to everything. This, this is Q&A and she has Only every for answer. anxiety. This is amazing. Okay. Uh, this is the last one I have in my hands. I don't see new ones coming in online. I don't see new ones walking in. So this might be our last question, and this might be the right way to end um, as we have a, another one coming in. Um, but this is going to be really good for everybody because everybody in the room is not only here for ourselves. Everybody watching online is not only here for ourselves, but we're all thinking of someone else that we might bless with some of what you've said tonight. Is there um, someone that you, if there's someone that you know that's battling anxiety, what's the best way to help as you're noticing their anxiety? So now how do I walk alongside the anxious? Number one, don't tell them to calm down. That's the worst, okay, it doesn't work. Nobody has ever calmed down in, in history because somebody said calm down, okay. Validate the experience, okay. If they are feeling anxious, they're, they are perceiving threat. You might not be perceiving threat, okay, but they are and it is real and it is a powerful experience, so acknowledge it. I see that this is stressful for you. I see that this is hard for you. This is real and show up at that level. Listen to what they have to say, don't fix it. The moment that you try to fix it and say, no, 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 don't be anxious about that. That's not a big deal. You don't need to be anxious about that. Do you know what they're gonna do? They're gonna come back and tell you all the reasons why they do need to be anxious about that and they're gonna hear all the reasons why they need to be anxious and it's gonna make them more anxious, right? Or they're gonna shut down because now you're not safe, so now I'm disconnected, and now I'm gonna struggle on my own, okay? So to show up, to sit with them, and even walking through some of the basic physical stuff with them, hey, you know what actually works for me is I actually breathe in this way. Can I sit next to you and can we breathe? 
Do you want me to put my hand on your back and rub your back? Is that soothing for you? Do you want me to simply be present, right? What is the thing that you are afraid of doing? How can I assist to make it feel safe enough that you can do that thing that you're avoiding? I am here to do it with you. Those are a lot of the strategies that can at least start to get people moving, but to feel safe with you so that they can start to work through it even independently. Would you say that it is appropriate for us, let's say my friend comes in and they're struggling with anxiety and they tell me as much, um, if Anna wants to put those books back up on the screen for the online audience, would it be appropriate for me to say, hey, do you want to pick one of these and we'll read it together? Absolutely. Is that a good way to go through Absolutely. that? Absolutely. It's great skills in general. The reality is that everybody experiences anxiety sometimes, right? Anxiety is adaptive. It's important. It helps promote our survival. So even if you don't struggle with anxiety that's taking over a big part of your life, yeah, if you go through it with them, you'll get something that'll be helpful. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Um, is there a way to deal with anxiety in school or the workplace? And here's the, the, the example. Example, uh, say there's anxiety about an upcoming project that you don't know if you are going to finish in time. So how can one manage uh, the worry that comes with uh, deadlines in work or school that comes with the, the kind of like, I'm not sure I'm actually going to get this done? How do you manage that? Perfect. Yeah. Go back to the plan. What is my plan for today? Right? How do I accomplish the tasks that I need to do today? Because worry shows up, that actually decreases your ability to engage with the work that you need to do and complete the actual plan that you have. So creating that structure, what is my plan for today? How do I get it done? If there's a lot of work today, how do I recover from the work that I have to do? When you are done, you're done for the day. It's not, ooh, I got done early, let me do more, or what am I gonna do tomorrow? How do I do this, right? I did what I was supposed to do, I met my plan tomorrow, now I restart again and I have the next plan that I take actionable steps towards and over time you start to build things being, being accomplished and getting them done. Awesome. Um, you talked about letting the fight or flight cycle happen. Let it happen, let it resolve itself. How do you know when that cycle is finished and how do you stop reactivating the cycle? Is there a way, mm. um, can we set an egg timer of some sort and just know like it's done? Yeah. So the lovely thing about our nervous system is you can detect threat, recover, detect it again, right? The very next second. Um, so not necessarily, you will know when you're through that cycle because th it feels like that adrenaline response, right? And you, you notice when your body starts to come down. A lot of people we actually even shake, like afterwards, you're actually kind of coming out of that fight or flight a lot of times when you feel the, the shaking coming through. Some people, they notice that at the beginning. But the reality is that the things that are triggering that fight or flight response, a lot of times that is sensory information and it's not going through our cognitive system first. It's going into the deeper parts of the brain and the brain is saying, that is, that's dangerous, react. A lot of times we don't even know why we're experiencing that fight or flight response. So we can't necessarily control whether or not it's going to happen again. Sometimes people can. They can learn some of the things that they are triggered by and they either choose to avoid them. What I would choose is kind of gently leaning in towards approaching them depending on the trigger. Trauma is a different story. So I'm talking about anxiety, not trauma. That's a whole different game. Um, but to really know you can use these skills all day long if you need to and having some of those things ready. If there's a situation and it's like at work, I'm anxious all day long. It's just there, I'm just overactivated all day long. 
How many different things are you going to bring into work? Where are you going to find that safe place where your body recovers? Do you go outside for 30 seconds at the end of every hour to take a breath and to get that moment? Do you practice your breathing throughout the day? And then really incorporating all of that to manage the system. Um, one of the things that the school here, the BG Christian Academy, where my kids go, they were kind enough to let me come and talk with them um, and share some of these same skills, and I love it. My daughter makes fun of me. Did you talk to them? Like, I did. She's like, I know, because I'm breathing all day long, right? Um, but as they switch activities, right, they're doing movement, they're doing breathing, they're doing some of these activities throughout the day with every change. I'm incorporating this to teach my system that this is safe and this is okay. So that was a long-winded answer that might not have answered the question, um, but you might have to do it a lot. That's fantastic. Okay, so this is my, uh, my question, and we'll end with this, and our time will be over tonight. Um, if you read the news, my 15 minutes a day, it does not seem like the, uh, the externalities that are creating uncertainty in us are going away. COVID variants or this disunity or this political thing um, can you encourage us as a whole, um, so individually you can all receive this because I'm waiting for this answer, can you just give us that last bit of encouragement on what does it look like to walk through the uncertainty ahead of us, how to avoid those fear pockets that create those eddies of anxiety, can you give us just a sense of as we walk through the rest of this year, um, how do we uh, stay on the right track, where do we return to, where do we root ourselves, and maybe let that be the last word tonight? Yes. So first and foremost, we have to acknowledge that we never had the control that we thought that we did. So yes, things are uncertain. Yes, it's difficult to know what's ahead. It's always been that way. We just thought that we had control that we didn't have. So we already know how to do this because we've already been doing this. What's shifted is our perception of the world because we were confronted with such a big change so quickly. We already do this all day long anyways. So know that you have that ability and know that ultimately, right, our security is never in, are we anxious, are we not anxious? Security is in God. He's got it. He knows, right? We can do things day in and day out to help us navigate this world better, but we've never had control. You guys give it up for uh, Carissa Watt. <laughs>